Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing, my privilege, and my honor to be in dialogue with Richard Carrier. He is Associate Professor of Military History at the Royal Military College of Canada. We are here to discuss his newly published book, Mussolini's Army Against Greece, October 1940 to April 1941, published in New York by Routledge, 2021. Richard, I'm humbled and overjoyed to be in dialogue with you today. Well, it is a clearly reciprocal. Thank you for the invitation. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired and catalyzed the scholar you would become as an adult? Oh, you know what? I mean, uh, my parents told me uh, very early in my youth that education uh, is important. And I uh, really believe that I took the right decisions to make my education the central part of my youth. And when I become a young adult, going to university was my goal. It was my main goal. And through the undergrad and then the master and the PhD, um, the profession of teaching uh, became for me the obvious professional path that I would uh, that I would undertake. And uh, by a series of um, moves and luck and chances, uh, I became a uh, uh, a professor of uh, military history at the Royal Military College of Canada uh, in 2008. Uh, previously, I was already linked to the military since 1996. I was a lecturer in a different institution with young officer cadets. So this is where I am, uh, where I am now. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Um, so two things here. Um, the inspiration uh, is um, the idea to contribute to a better understanding of the Italian army's performance in the Second World War. Uh, this is really what inspired me to write the book, and especially during the period of 1940 to 1943. So this is the inspiration uh, behind the, behind this book. The message I would like to convey to readers um, is the following one. Between June 1940 and September 1943, the Italian army fought seven conventional campaigns against many opponents on two continents. The overall performance of the Italian army is, was, sorry, uneven. The campaign against Greece was the most tragic demonstration of poor battlefield performance. But the Italian army did relatively well in North Africa and relatively well in Russia at specific moments in both campaigns. So the campaign against Greece was the worst performance of the Italian army in the Second World War. And I think that we did not know enough about 
this performance and that's the reason I wanted to write the book and convey to the readers this very particular experience, deadly experience and very terrible experience in this relatively short 176 day campaign. So that was the idea, uh, the message I want to convey to the readers of, uh, of the book. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? So there are two primary themes uh, in the book. Um, the first theme is the notion of military effectiveness uh, that I define in the book as the process by which armed forces convert resources into fighting power. So the idea of military effectiveness or ineffectiveness or lack of effectiveness is central. The second theme is related to the first one. It's the idea of fighting power. Fighting power is defined in the book as the capacity to engage the enemy, to sustain combat and limit losses. Um, and the result of a campaign is largely dependent on the fighting power of an army. So the book is an essay about the military organization that is the Italian army at war against Greece during a six-month period. The story that I tell in the book, the, the story that I want to, uh, to share with the readers and the analysis that I want to share with the readers is that against Greece, there were four very specific reasons why the Italian army failed. First, the failing command structures in Rome and in Albania. Second, the inadequate weapons and equipment of the Italian army in this specific campaign. Third, the unprepared and unmotivated combatants. It was for the Italian combatants a very unpleasant, if I can use this word, experience compared to other campaigns of the Second World War. And fourth, the terrible logistics of the campaign. If we aggregate these four factors, I think it helps us to understand why the campaign was such a military fiasco and a political disaster for Benito, uh, for Benito Mussolini. And in the end, these four factors all together, I mean, impacted negatively on the fighting power of the Italian army on the battlefield. Uh, we will see that later, how this low fighting power was, I mean, terrible in terms of impossibility to make any real success on, a, on the battlefield. So this is what the book tells about this campaign for the Italian, the Italian army. What is your book's contribution to the history and historiography of World War II? Um, I think for the history of the Second World War, 
my intention was to give a better understanding of one of the most neglected campaign of the war in Europe. Um, let me compare. Uh, the German campaign against France was spectacular. If, if everybody knew about that. I mean, uh, uh, the terrible collapse of France, the great German victory, and, uh, and, and the war in the East was, with the launch of Operation Barbarossa, became the central campaign of the war in uh, Europe before D-Day. The campaign against, against Greece is almost totally neglected in the history of the Second World War because it was short and because it ended with, again, a German quick victory. It was Mussolini's fault. It was an Italian disaster. But after the armistice of the 23rd of April 1941, the official end of the war against Greece, then everybody moved on. The campaign against Greece became a very little thing in the history of the Second World War, and soon it would be the biggest clash of the Second World War, the confrontation between Nazi Germany and the Soviet, the Soviet Union. So I think that to tell a story about a campaign that is neglected is, uh, is an action that can only enrich the history of the Second World War. About the historiography of the Second World War, um, I told you already, and the reader will, will discover that, this book is about an army's effectiveness or lack of it. I've already been, already, already been surprised in the past, and I'm still surprised that in the historiography of the Second World War, historians and scholars do not, well, did not, and still do not discuss very much the notion of military effectiveness. Um, they don't really ask the question why this army lost, why this army prevailed. They like to give details or explanations about the global picture of one campaign or the global picture of the unfolding of the war in Europe or in the Pacific or in Asia or in North Africa. But very rarely historians or scholars are going to concentrate their attention on the military effectiveness of armies. Uh, many are obsessed with battles, uh, the Battle of Stalingrad, the Battle of Kursk, uh, D-Day in Normandy, uh, and, and the battles are important. But the serious reflection about the military organization ability to wage war is something that is, for me, still something that is not done as it should be by historians and scholars. Why did Benito Mussolini decide to invade Greece? Well, I can give you 10, 10 reasons, but I will limit myself to three. The most important, the most important, the most important one. Um, the first one, and it's, it's a very simple uh, reason, and most scholars, uh, my colleagues will agree with that, 
he decided to invade Greece, the 20th October 1940, uh, to give a second life to his parallel war. Uh, and this campaign uh, would bring him an easy victory. Uh, McGregor Knox uh, liked to say and to write that he wanted to do something. And um, this is the most important reason. And to invade Greece would also, um, also counter the German influence uh, in the Balkans. So this is the, main, uh, this is the main reason. The second reason, and it is a reason that is linked to the first one. Um, Mussolini declared war on 10th of June, 1940. The invasion of Greece is the end of October 1940. The war in the summer for Mussolini is not doing very great. Uh, there is no spectacular success. The campaign against France in the Alps, it was a very short campaign, was not particularly uh, interesting for him in the sense that it does not, it did not bring a great success. Militarily speaking, it was a not a very good enterprise. The war in North Africa was not going well. Uh, Graziani's 10th Army invaded Egypt the beginning of September. The British forces withdrew in order. And then nothing else happened. In East Africa, the unfolding of the war took place in a vacuum. So we are at the end of September 1940, the beginning of October 1940. Mussolini needed to do something to make sure that is parallel war, the war that he wants to fight in parallel of Hitler's war is still alive. Why Greece? Well, Greece seemed to be the right in me. Uh, a small country of 7 million people, almost no industry, and quite politically isolated in the sense that Greece was not part of a military structured alliance with a great, uh, a great power. So the enterprise seemed quite easy victory would be quite certain and nobody would stop him to do uh, to do that these are the three reasons that are the most important ones to explain Mussolini's decision to invade Greece what role did marshal pietro badoglio play in the decision making pertaining to greece this is an interesting uh, this is an interesting question i will start by saying that uh, often in the history of the second world war where historians talk about the greek campaign they often present uh, marshal badoglio's role um, in a very strange way if uh, if if I might say, uh, if I might say that, uh, they like to believe that Badoglio was a break, that Badoglio was against the invasion. It is more complex than that. First, let me say a few words about Badoglio and 
the man he is in the summer and the fall of 1940. He is the chief of the armed forces general staff. So he is the first military advisor of the dictator. This is on paper. On paper, he is the man calling the shots. It was not the reality. He still has in the army a lot of prestige. He is respected by many uh, high-ranking officers in the Italian army, less in the Air Force, and not very much in the Navy. But he is not in 1940 the man who ended the conquest of Ethiopia in May 1936. That was the peak of his prestige. And very interestingly, when Mussolini decided to partake in the Greek, uh, sorry, the Spanish Civil War, Badoglio was not consulted. Badoglio was not part of the process of the decision making. He was really sidelined, completely sidelined by Mussolini and uh, other military. So in the summer and the fall of 1940, the role of Badoglio as the chief of the armed forces general staff evaluated, uh, transformed, was transformed. I'm just going to give you a few dates just to, I mean, un understand the unfolding of the man's position. But he was first informed by Mussolini about uh, the dictator's intention to invade Greece in July, early July 1940. He, did, he said nothing. It was just a piece of information for him. On October the 14th, so we are months later, Mussolini said to Badoglio that the intention was a full scale of Greece and not a minor operation in Northwest Greece. To that, Badoglio replied, we need 20 divisions to do that. The day after, we are 15th of October, there is a famous meeting where Badoglio is, was, sorry, where he backed the plan of invasion that was proposed by General Visconti Prasca, the commander-in-chief of the Italian forces in Albania. Uh, we have, um, this meeting has been recorded. We have evidence who was at the meeting, what was said at the meeting. And during the meeting, Bad Badoglio did not say out loud that the invasion was wrong, that the plan was wrong, and that the victory would not be achieved. Two days later, we are 17th of October, Badaglio had a meeting with the service chiefs, uh, the Air Force, the Navy, and the Army chiefs of staff. They all, I mean, had reservations about the invasion of Greece. They shared these reservations with Badoglio. The same day, Badoglio shared these reservations with Ciano, the Minister of Foreign Affairs. 
and 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 Chienu is an important personage in this thing because uh, Chienu is not only the son of the son-in-law of Mussolini. Uh, he is the man behind the invasion of Albania in April 1939. Uh, Chienu would like to believe that Albania was his little personal fiefdom, and everything. Um, that would be done from Albania would be done with the blessing of Kant Chiano. So Badoglio shared the reservations of the service chiefs with Chiano, and Chiano said that Badoglio had to share these reservations with Mussolini in a personal meeting. At that time, this is something that we do not know for sure. Seemingly, the same day, or the morning of the following day, the 18th of October, Badoglio said, or supposedly said to uh, Ubaldo Sudu, Undersecretary of War, a powerful man, that he would resign if the invasion takes place. We don't know for sure what happened on the meeting of the 18th of October when Badoglio met Mussolini alone. We do not have uh, records of this meeting. At the end of the meeting, the Duce had decided to delay the operation by two days. So the operation would be launched the 28th of October and not the 26th of October. Seemingly, Badoglio got two extra days for the preparation of the operation. From that moment, 18th of October until the 28th of October, Badoglio basically confined himself to the implementation of Mussolini's directives about the operation to the service chiefs. In clear, if I want to sum up, Badoglio decided not to oppose Mussolini's will about the invasion because he probably believed that he would not be able to stop the dictator. But he did not resign. And here, probably that his thinking was the following one. If I resign, the operation goes on and it is a success. I will be seen as a bad player because victory was achieved. I was against the operation and my position as the chief of the army sorry of the armed forces general staff would be endangered badoglio went this way uh, this is my understanding of what i've seen in the archives what i've seen in memoirs and by the way badoglio memoirs are particularly unreliable uh, he likes to tell stories that did not actually uh, that did not actually take place uh, uh, at that uh, at that moment. Why did the Italian invasion of Greece fail so rapidly? Um, 
I would say that there are three main reasons, and I will just rapidly uh, give you uh, the timeline. The invasion was launched the morning of the 28th of October, 1940. In the first days, um, there are hopes that some Italian divisions uh, would do good. Uh, in fact, the Ulia Alpine division um, was marching into Greek territory at a pretty good pace and did quite well in achieving some of its objective. But rapidly, by the end of the first week of November, it was clear that most objectives have not been reached. It was clear that the invasion had failed at the end of the first week of November. Um, then three reasons explaining this. The Italian invading forces were largely insufficient for the task. In this kind of, of particular theater of war, this kind of terrain, the geography of, of the northwest part of Greece, you need an advantage in man at least three, four times more than your enemy. When the operation was, was launched, the Italian army in Albania is 140,000 men and only 80,000 of them were frontline soldiers. It was not enough men on the front line to succeed, to push the Greek line and to defeat the enemy, uh, the, the enemy position. The second reason, it's the end of October 1940 in the south of Albania, in, in northwestern Greece, the Epirus region of Greece. The weather was terrible. It was raining a lot. And when, it, when we say rain, we say mud. It was cold. The terrain is very difficult. There is no flat plains over there. We're talking about valleys. We're talking about hills. We're talking about mountains, many of them of more than 1,000 1, meters. Very difficult terrain. Even for the best troops you can imagine, it is a difficult theater of operation. And the supplies run short quickly. In the case of the Ulia division, uh, the advance of the division uh, was relatively good and rapidly the division was running short of equipment, clothing, and food because the supplies were not sufficient to sustain this kind of attack on a large scale. And the last point in my second point here, because the weather was bad, the Italian Air Force was incapable to support the troops on the ground. The weather was too bad. And the last reason why the invasion failed so rapidly, Mussolini 
and the military totally underestimated the determination of the Greek people, the Greek government, and the Greek army. They totally, Mussolini and, and his associate, the proponents of the invasion, they totally ignored the available intelligence that was available on Greece. They totally ignored the reports coming from the Italian ambassador in Athens and from the Italian military attaché in Athens. I have seen the reports of the Servizio Informazione Militare. It's a comprehensive 200 pages report on Greece and the state of the Greek army, the Greek people in 1940. It was crazy to go against this report. This is what Mussolini did. So for this, these reasons, three main reasons, it was very, very unlikely that the invasion could succeed in within two weeks or three weeks. It was in, in, in Mussolini's mind, the Italian troops were supposed to be in Athens at the end of the month of November. It never, obviously, it never took place. Can you tell us about the different Greek and Italian army divisions involved in the conflict? How did they fare? Yes, certainly. Um, first, uh, and, and here it's it's difficult to be absolutely sure about um, the Greek figures because uh, uh, I am not a reader of the Greek language. I've never been in the Greek archives in Athens, so we have to be careful. Uh, my, the numbers and the figures that are in the book are uh, aggregates of different sources. Uh, I have uh, Greek sources, official sources. So I just want to make clear that basically when we're talking about figures, we're talking about ballparks, approximations. A Greek division, uh, was made of three uh, infantry regiments. And usually uh, it was something around 18,000 men. Um, very typical size for a division uh, of a European army in 1939-1940. On the other side, the Italian army uh, made a move before the Second World War to have smaller divisions, divisions on two regiments instead of three regiments. Uh, it is the only army in 1940 with divisions with only two regiments. Uh, in the case of the typical infantry division, it numbered 13,000 men, a little bit more in the case of an Alpine division, uh, 14,700 men. So the typical Italian divisions that took part in the invasion of Greece were smaller division than Greek divisions. And because of that, if they suffer a lot of losses, it means that they become more fragile more rapidly than a typical Greek division. Second point of comparison about, about the, the, two, uh, the two armies. Um, a Greek division, and this is very important, had in general 70% more 
light machine guns and machine guns than the Italian equivalent division. It is a lot. More machine guns, more uh, uh, light machine guns than the Italians. A Greek division had less mortars, had less infantry support guns, the guns that are used by uh, the infantry units to support their action, and they also had less artillery. But this, all of this, uh, was the data on paper. It's not the reality of combat. Let me give you a very good example. Uh, in the typical Italian division, you have more 81 millimeter mortars than in the Greek division. But from the very moment that the Greek counteroffensive took place, it means that Italian infantrymen, when they were withdrawing, left behind a lot of equipment, mortars of 45, 45 millimeters, and also a lot of the 81 very precious mortars. Because the 81 millimeter mortar is a heavy weapon to transport, and they did not, the Italian infantrymen, have the backpack to dismantle the gun and to take the gun with them in the withdrawal. In the end, and we know that because we have pictures of this, we have archival evidence of that in the Italian archives, that many times we find Greek units fighting with Italian grenades, Italian 45 millimeter mortars, and also 81 millimeter Italian mortars that have been left on the battlefield by retreating units. So that's the reason why the comparison on paper before the beginning of the invasion is one thing, and what happened on the battlefield and what equipment and weaponry left on the battlefield uh, was making uh, a difference. An additional point, and this is interesting, the Italian army deployed one armored division in the campaign, the Centoro Armored Division. Uh, the armored division was deployed in, if I remember, something like the end of November, early December. The Greeks had no deployment of an armored division. They had a mechanized uh, formation, but it did not partake in the, uh, in, the cam in the campaign. That is interesting because the deployment of an armored division in this theater of operation was not a very good idea. And I will take, I will talk about this later, uh, later on, but the, the possibility of an armored division in the northwestern part of Greece, the Epirus, in a very mountainous uh, theater of operation with very, very primitive roads and very bad tracks made the armored division a very easy target for Greek gunners. I might be back later uh, on this. And a final point about, uh, well, two, two other things about the, uh, the respective armies. The 
Itali the Italian invading divisions were at full strength in personal. So, I mean, uh, 13 or 14,000 men in each division that were taking part. But they were not at full strength in terms of vehicles or animals. And animals were very important on this theater of operation. They got only 75% of their vehicles and their animals. It might not look as very big, 75 versus 100% strength. It did matter. It's not negligible. The other thing uh, I want to say to conclude this, uh, this very important question about the comparing uh, about the, the, the two armies. In the case of a long campaign, and for the Italians, it was not expected. Every single man, every single unit, every single piece of equipment would come from Italy through the Adriatic in an overseas operation. The logistic of the Greek armies fighting the invader were easier. Still, a poor network, still bad roads, but you are in your own country. Your bases of supplies are closer. You don't have to cross the Adriatic. So it meant that from the moment the Italian commanders realized that this would be a long campaign, they understood that it would become a logistical nightmare because it became an overseas operation. That was a very important thing. What kinds of weaponry were employed in the Italo-Greek War? Um, there are five points that I want to share with you here. The campaign looked very much like a First World War campaign where the dominant role belonged to the infantry and the artillery. So it's, uh, it's, it's not a typical uh, spectacular campaign of the Second World War where you see uh, mechanized motorized divisions going full speed into enemy territory. It has nothing to do with that. It was really an infantry and an artillery campaign. So basically, Individual rifles, light machine guns, machine guns, grenades, mortars, infantry support guns, artillery guns. This was the weaponry used by both belligerents uh, in the 176-day day campaign. The third point, the Italian Air Force. On paper, it's completely superior to the uh, the Greek, the Hellenic Air Force. But every mission, close air support and interdiction mission depended on the weather. And overall, um, uh, the Italian Air Force made 23,000 sorties during the campaign. It did not change the outcome of the campaign. It was not good enough. It was not, the bombing was not precise enough. The training of the air crews was not 
particularly adapted to this kind of close air support interdiction mission on a theater of operation that is high altitude valleys and uh, and uh, and things like that so it did not impact very much on this uh, on this campaign uh, again i want to come back to the uh, chentoro armored division it made no difference it was a bad idea uh, this division should have been sent to north africa uh, where it could have made a difference in 1940. Uh, eventually, it will go to Africa, but it only very later. Uh, again, in, in the campaign against, against Greece, I saw the records of the division. It was terrible. Uh, the tanks, the medium tanks, uh, were destroyed or immobilized one after the other by very precise Greek artillery fire. Uh, it was of no use. Um, a last point, and this is a point that I like to, uh, I like to believe it's interesting. The Italian uh, leadership, military leadership, did not make use of some weapons that were available in the Italian weaponry at that time of the Second World War. Uh, I want to give you three examples. In 1940, the Italian army already has a very good submachine gun, the Beretta 38. By all standards, it is one of the best submachine gun, not only in 1940, but for the entire Second World War. The gun was adopted by the Italian army, never produced in mass, never distributed to the infantry. Only a, a couple of hundreds are going to go to the Carabinieri and, uh, and other, uh, other elite uh, forces, uh, eventually the Folgori uh, airborne, airborne unit. So total absence of the submachine gun in the Italian infantry that could have made a difference for a platoon leader or a section leader in close quarter action against enemy troops. Two other things, they had flame throwers. Flame throwers have been used by many armies in the Second World War for specific actions on the battlefield. They are terrible weapons to use, but they are deadly when they are used in specific actions. And they also have psychological effects because of what they are. The Italian army did not use flamethrowers against Greek units in the campaign. They did use flamethrowers in Russia later when they were deployed against the Red Army. They were also deployed in North Africa, where flame towers were used also on some occasions. A last little piece of equipment that is very interesting. In close quarter actions and clashes and, 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 and battles in the mountains of uh, Albania, when the war is Albania after the Greek counteroffensive, the ability to conceal your positions is important. 
the ability to conceal your defensive positions is important. The ability to conceal your troops moving forward on the offensive is important. In both cases, smoke bombs or smoke grenades would have been very useful. They were not used during the campaign. We don't know why exactly. Cavallero, in March 19, Cavallero is at that time commander-in-chief of the forces and also chief of Commando Supremo at that time. At the end of March 1941, he asked permission to Mussolini to use smoke bombs because the Greek did use them in some action. It's a, it's a very, very intriguing point here. Why the Italians were so careful not to use, not to use some weapons and especially the weapons that are related to the chemical aspects of weaponry. The Germans were also aware about the possibility of uh, the Italian using chemical weapons and very rapidly, the Italians uh, reassured the Germans were not going to use chemical weapons in this campaign. But it went as far as not using smoke bombs or smoke grenades, which was a very, very bad mistake, if you want my, uh, my opinion. On page 135, you write as follows. The combatants' poor training and deficient military preparation found their origins in two main factors. The first concerns the quality of training during compulsory military service. For many administrative and financial reasons, the 18-month service offered in reality no more than three or four months of actual training, the rest of the time being dedicated to regimental duties. Compared to the 24-month military service, of the Greek conscripts, it was truly nothing. Poor preparation affected all army units, including the Alpini. If their regional recruitment and selection allowed the development of strong unit cohesion, as the campaign showed, their training did not prepare them for modern war in 1940. Can you elaborate? Yeah, well, I will be brief, uh, but um, it's clearly a major flaw of the Italian army in 1940. Uh, military service was, in reality, very short. So you have infantrymen with very limited skills. As many historians, Italian historians, uh, said in their great books or articles, uh, the men, they, they know how to march, they know how to parade, uh, they know the very basic firing skills. That's pretty much what they know. It means that at the section and the platoon level, the infantrymen and their officers have no idea how to operate on a difficult terrain against an enemy that is firing at them. Um, on the offensive, the Italian troops, when they came under fire, instead of dispersing, they massed themselves together. It means that when 
the Greek gunners were able to see them, they became very easy targets. There are some atrocious pictures of groups of Italian soldiers killed because they were all together and obviously they have been targeted by Greek gunners. So the inability to learn what should be done in modern warfare in uh, an army in 1940, how to move on the battlefield, uh, how to practice elastic defensive action, defensive in death. They knew nothing about that. It meant that on the battlefield, many offensive and defensive actions were improvised. If you have a good leader, maybe you have a chance to survive. If you have a bad leader, it's going to be very, very painful. And the point I made in this part is uh, some people tend to overestimate the Alpine division compared to the typical infantry division. We know that basically their training was not very different. It was insufficient training, not enough firing exercises, uh, no familiarity with the handling of grenades. It sounds easy, but it's not that easy. How to operate the machine guns, how to fire very efficiently mortars, all these things were very limited in the training of the Italian Infantry and Alpine Division. The point I made is the local recruitment of the Alpine Division helped them to stick together because these men were buddies. They knew each other because they, they, they come from the same pieces of territory in Italy. Uh, while the rest of the Italian divisions are often mixed of people coming from different uh, different reasons regions, sorry. So, in the end, it's true that the Alpine divisions probably had a better cohesion because of this local recruitment. But in terms of fighting power on the battlefield, it was not significantly different than a typical Italian infantry division. Can you tell us about the, the importance of logistics in the Italian army's ability to fight? Uh, yeah, uh, I can say a few things about, uh, about that. Um, after the failure of the invasion, first week of November, by the end of the first week of November, it is clear the invasion had failed. What was also clear is that a logistical crisis was looming. Supplies were running short. And from this very moment, everything had to come from the mainland. This is the situation. We discussed this a little bit uh, earlier in, uh, in our interview. So everything came from Italy. It means that the campaign became a massive overseas operation supported by an important airlift. But it was most and for all clearly a massive overseas operation because planes can transport men, 
can transport very light pieces of equipment, can carry back to Italy the most seriously injured man, but all the heavy equipment and material came from Italy. This is absolutely fundamental. In Albania, there are three crucial factors that are very important to understand. The parts of Italy were modern for Italy in 1940. The parts in Albania were not modern. The two biggest ports, Valona and Durazzo, had very limited capacity of unloading material, man, equipment, everything. So the problem is not to transport a lot of things to Albania. The problem is in Albania, you will probably have bottlenecks in harbor facilities because the unloading capacity is very, very limited. First problem. Second problem, in Albania, the road network was very poor. It meant that to be able to supply two armies, 11th armies, 9th armies, the Italian had virtually to build from scratch a network of roads to support these two armies. And if you do that, you understand that you need thousands of trucks to supply both armies. Third little point about that, this, this is very interesting. You cannot reach the front line with motor vehicles. You can only reach the front lines with animals, mules. So let's take the example of men. Men are leaving Durazzo or Valona in trucks. They go to a specific point because the trucks cannot go further anymore. From then to the front line, the men are marching. If you're talking about equipment, the equipment is unloaded from the trucks at a specific location and put on mules to reach the front line. And we're talking about equipment. I'm also talking about food. Everything reaching the front line was basically transported by mules. Mules were an essential piece of the logistics of the Italian armies during, during the campaign. I just want to conclude here very rapidly on logistics. If you send more men, it means that you will have to send more of everything. You just cannot send men in Albania expecting them not having the equipment or the food. Second problem, are you sending in priority to save the armies in Albania? Are you sending men or you're sending material? Third little problem, time is of critical importance. The shipping of one division to, Al to Albania required 22 ships and eight days to complete the cycle of loading in Italy, the traveling on the Adriatic, and the unloading in Albania. And then you also have to remember that the moment that a full division has been unloaded 
in one of the Albanian port. It is not at the front line. So between the moment where you are totally unloaded and the moment you will reach the front line, we might take five, six, eight, nine days. And all of this was made even more complicated at the very beginning of the campaign when the road network was in a very, very bad shape. Can you tell us about Italian combatants' morale during the war? Yes. Um, in general, morale was never high. It was not always bad. This is the most general appreciation I make in the, in the book. I can also say that morale fluctuated. Um, that's the introduction to my, uh, to my answer. Two things influence morale. First, the unfolding of the military operations. In the first days of the offensive, morale is not bad because the Italians are invading and they do some gains on the other side of the Greek border before being outed by the Greek action or because they were running out of supplies. And then came the Greek counter-offensive, a general counter-offensive, November 15, 1940. It came as a shock for the Italian combatants because they were not ready for that. They were not expecting such a well-prepared counter-offensive and they were running short of supplies. And then the Italian combatants had no choice and the Italian generals had no choice to withdraw the line. It means retreat. And they retreated and they retreated. A retreat is never good for morale unless it is perfectly executed by very skilled divisional commanders, army corps commanders, and army commanders, which was not the case in November and December and even January. So I would say that morale was pretty bad in November, December, January. It, it became better in February when it was clear for everybody that the Italian line will hold the Greek pressure. But it took time. And it also took time for morale to be good because the men needed everything. They need absolutely everything, clothing, food, equipment, ammunition. And when all these things were not coming properly to, you, to the units, it was always detrimental to, uh, to morale. And I just want to add very rapidly three things. In Albania, for most of the campaign, the Greek soldiers were hungry. They never had enough food. Food was always at the core of the logistical problem suffered by two armies. Medical services were insufficient at least until January 1941. If you are injured and you know that the medical services are not good enough, 
you are not in a position to have a good attitude or a good morale. And a last point, the postal service was terrible. It took basically weeks for men on the front line to receive letters from home. And we all know, military historians and military sociologists, the importance of the postal service because it, it keeps the men in contact with their family. At least until January, it was a very problematic aspect of the combatants of the combatants' life. What were the specific numbers of Italian casualties and Greek casualties in the conflict? Yes, it is an interesting point here. Um, we know for sure, and it, again, it's, it is an approximation, but the approximation is the best one I've seen over years of research, that the campaign caused between 20 and 23,000 Italian men, the life of men, I'm, I'm saying fatalities, dead men, 20, 23,000. It's the ballpark. The Greek death toll is between 13 and 14,000, considerably less. 51,000 Italian soldiers were injured against 38,000 injured on the Greek side. 17,000 Italian soldiers suffered from frostbite. 25,000 Greek soldiers suffered from frostbite. And the last very interesting figure, 21, thousand Italian soldiers were captured by the Greeks. 2,400 Greek soldiers were captured by the Italian soldiers. Overall, the Italian army lost total losses, casualties, 154,000 men during the, the campaign. The Greek army lost just under 80,000 men. And I want to conclude this in saying the following thing. The Italian army lost 20, 23,000 men in a six-month campaign. They lost in the very long North African campaign of 35 months the same amount of men. The campaign against Greece was a bloody ordeal, very bloody ordeal for the Italians. What does your book teach us about military effectiveness and ineffectiveness? Um, briefly, um, I think that the ability for a military organization to convert resources into a fighting power is a complex reality. Um, I always believe that sometimes historians tend to oversimplify why armies are doing good and why armies are failing on the battlefield. I think that military effectiveness is truly a complex reality and it depends on political and military factors, both of them, not one or the other. I mean, a great political, uh, a great political plan, a great strategy invented by uh, a great political warlord is wanting. It can collapse on the battlefield if your military organization is not up, uh, is not up to the task. 
In the case of the failed invasion of Greece, I think that the book says that the errors made by Mussolini, the mistakes he made, the flaws of his style of command, they were numerous. They were important. But the military also failed. The Italian army failed also. So the failure is not only Mussolini's failure, it's Mussolini's failure and the Italian army's failure to defeat the Greek army uh, in this uh, six-month uh, six campaign. And I just want to add something about here. Um, I, I don't want in the book, I didn't want in the book to portray the Italian combatants as, uh, come on, bad soldiers. I didn't want to portray the officers and the generals as incompetent. You know what? Most of them were competent. Uh, some were totally incompetent, and uh, um, it's the case of many armies during the Second and the Second World War. Um, I want to give you the example of General uh, Hugo Cavallero. Cavallero um, became the commander-in-chief of the armies in Albania in early December. Uh, he was a man of great intelligence. He understood very clearly in which situation the Italian armies were. He did work out something that was good enough to save the armies from collapse, but not good enough to prevail against the enemy. That he was a man of great intelligence is very well known. He understood the importance of logistics, something that was not understood at the beginning of the invasion. He also understood the great limitations of the infantrymen, the soldiers. Nevertheless, he did not make the difference. No one made a difference. It was a bad campaign because it was badly planned. They underestimated the Greeks in a very, very stupid way. And, and I have to conclude on this, the Italian armies were saved by the German intervention against Greece. And for many Italian combatants in April, because the campaign is not over in the early April of 1941, for many Italian combatants, the Germans are going to defeat Greece, and then it will be the end of the ordeal. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Uh, I did a few uh, a few things, uh, uh, papers and articles. Uh, uh, I am a, I will be a contributor uh, for. Uh, a book published by Cambridge on the Nazi-Soviet uh, war that will be published in 25 or 26. Uh, I did the part on the Italian intervention on the Eastern Front. And right now, I am um, currently writing a paper on the seven campaigns fought by the Italian army between June 1940 and September 1943. Um, I, I did adopt a comparative perspective, the length of the campaign, the rationale of the campaign, the manpower deployed, uh, the battle effectiveness, uh, the losses and the endings in each campaign. My objective with this paper is to provide a quick reference guide 
to anyone who wants to know in a rapid way things about the Italian army during these 35, well, 38 months of fighting between June 1940 and September 1943. So this is what I'm working on um, right now. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I would like to end by conveying my heartfelt gratitude to you, Richard, for your generous and erudite responses during the course of our dialogue and all the knowledge and wisdom that you shared with us during the course of today's conversation. Thank you for all the effort and sacrifice you invested in preparing this marvelous book. Thank you very much, Ari. It was a pleasure being with you and I hope the uh, listener will enjoy uh, this interview and I hope they will enjoy the book. Uh, that would be uh, my, greatest, uh, my greatest joy. I hope so too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. As, as we end today, I am your host on the New Books and History podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Richard Carrier. He is Associate Professor of Military History at the Royal Military College of Canada. We have been discussing his newly published book, Mussolini's Army Against Greece, October 1940 to April 1941, published in New York by Routledge 2021. Thank you. Thank you.